David Gass, former pastor of Grace Family Fellowship. Joshua Harris, former pastor of Covenant Life Church in Gaithersburg, Maryland. Marty Sampson, former songwriter and worship leader of Hillsong. And YouTube sensations, Rhett McLaughlin and Link Neal. The first of these three men have resigned from their high-profile ministry positions. And all five of these men have publicly denied the faith within the last 12 months. Sobering indeed. But not unexpected. Not necessarily because of them per se, but because Jesus himself told us that some would fall away. Matthew chapter 24. And in falling away, evidencing that they never truly believed. And as you remember these, would encourage us to pray for them, to pray for their families, pray for those who have benefited and who sat under their ministries. And to also be praying for others to persevere in the faith. You see, for many of us, when we think of denying the faith, these are the examples that we most often think of. A public renunciation of our faith on social media. A book written criticizing the Christian faith. A local uh, joining of a local atheist club. But our passage this morning, James drops some hard-hitting words that puts this reality of denying the faith closer to home than any of us would care to admit. You see, James makes it clear that showing favoritism, showing partiality towards some and thus being biased towards others is a fundamental denial of the gospel. And brothers and sisters, if we deny the gospel, we are denying the very heart of the Christian faith. And this is what we've come to expect thus far from James in his direct yet oh so pastoral letter. This approach that he's written in order to answer the questions of what does a living faith look like day in and day out. You see, James is writing to remind these scattered and persecuted Christians of the connection that exists between what they believe and how they live. How actions reveal more than mere thought processes in the moment, but they actually reveal what we believe. How our lives reveal our hearts. And because God loves us, he has given us this letter to con- to to keep from continuing in self-deception. You see, chapter one was all about how we respond to various trials. How do we persevere amidst various trials? Chapter one encouraged us to seek a generous God for wisdom. Chapter one encouraged us, how do we respond and think through temptations? And chapter one uh, ended with uh, calling followers of Jesus to respond to the word of God. 
and how we respond to each of those things reveal what's truly happening in our hearts. And our passage today will tell us of a test that would help us discern the genuine nature of our faith. And that test is the test of favoritism. It's the test of partiality. And again, the emphasis, the reason, the impetus for James' writing is not merely that we would know the right thing, but that we would so act upon the right that we know. James chapter 1, verse 22. This week, I've prayed that the sermon wouldn't merely present new information, but that the truth that's presented would work its way deeply into our hearts and so change who we are. And for that to happen, we need a lot more than just uh, a sermon from this manuscript to you. We need the Spirit to breathe life into this. And so let's pray. Our holy God, we trust you. Oh, how we trust you. And we would like to think that we have proved you over and over. Time and time again, we have proven that we trust you. And yet the sad reality for our lives is that oftentimes that's not been the case. And this is on us, Lord, not on you. We need more of you to hear your word clearly, to hear your word with understanding, to receive your word with gratitude and joy. We need you to hold us fast so that the word that goes forth would not be choked out by the things of the world. And so would you bless your word to our hearing, we pray. Bless us to believe and so prove you over and over to be the faithful God who's worthy of all of our attention, all of our affection, and all of our allegiance. Help us see Christ clearly in the scriptures and use this sermon to remind, your, to remind us of your love for us. Please do far more with this than I could ever do. For your glory, we pray these things. Amen. Well, I would invite you to open your Bibles to James chapter 2. It's a good practice anytime you hear the Word of God taught to have your Bibles open, to follow along, to ensure that everything that is said uh, is coming from the verses that you're reading. Uh, you want to have confidence that what you're hearing is not some man's ideas about the Word, but it is indeed the Word itself. And you want then the point of the sermon that you're hearing to be the point of the passage that you're seeing. And so this morning, James gives one overarching, one main claim, and then he gives five reasons for such claim. And I've just given you the sermon outline. One main overarching claim and five reasons for such claim. James' claim that he makes in James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13 is this. Partiality, or your translation may read favoritism. Partiality, favoritism, has no place among followers of Jesus. Partiality has no place among followers of Jesus. Where do we see that? We see that in verse 1. 
Listen again, my brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. This chapter begins with a command. And the command is making clear that we are not to hold our faith with favoritism. And so just a quick aside, the temptation and the self-deceiving patterns of our hearts at this point can begin to make us think, ah, this is the sermon that I'm so glad that someone else is listening to. And I just want to be clear, long before this is ever a sermon for someone else, it's for you and it's for me. We all need this warning because we are all prone to do the very thing that James says shall not be true of followers of Jesus. Favoritism, partiality, it literally means to receive the face of. To receive the face of. And so the idea is that we then receive or welcome, embrace someone according to their face, according to their external appearance. That's what the word literally means. And so the issue that James is speaking to in James chapter two is an issue of receiving someone on the basis of wealth and, on the, and denying someone being biased towards another on the basis of their poverty. But the word that's used here for favoritism, it's a plural word in the Greek. And so as we think about what this meant in this context in relation to wealth and poverty, we would be wise to just sort of open those categories up a little bit this morning. Physical appearance, skin color, race, nationality, finances, what we think someone else has, where someone lives, their circle of friends, the table they sit at at the lunchroom, where they live, the neighborhood they're in, their mental capacity, their social ability, their body type. In so many ways, as soon as we walk into a room, our minds begin to whiz like a supercomputer sizing up people as soon as we see them. And all week I've been convicted by this text because the spirit has allowed some soul searching questions to begin to pop up in my heart. When you walk into a room, what is it that you first take notice of? When you talk to someone else, what is it that you're drawn to? What is it that you admire? What is it that you gravitate towards? What is it that puts you off and you seek to avoid in other people? Who are you most likely to invite over? And I want to be clear, this text isn't saying that you have to have... Uh, uh, you have to be equally close to everyone. It's not saying that you can't have friends that are closer than others, but it is asking on what basis do you assess and value and reject and avoid people? And does that affect the way you reach out to treat other people and to honor them or dishonor them? I wonder this morning if you would be honest if you would say, I harbor a low-grade self-sufficient smugness that says, I don't need this person and I don't want to need this person and I don't want to pursue this person 
because I determine who it is that I benefit and who it is that I benefit from. We never say this aloud, but James sees it and he calls it for what it is and he says it aloud. And this command, it's commanded because when we make distinctions like this, we contradict the character of God that we claim to worship. When you and I assess and judge and show favoritism and partiality in that moment, we are contradicting a God whose character is exactly the opposite of that. If we were to flip back to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. We see this move from who God is to then how that informs how he relates to other people. And so when Christians, people then who are united and who identify with this God through faith in the work of Jesus, his son, when we then say, ah, but I can have partiality and I can show favoritism, we are contradicting the very character of the God who we belong to. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, the story of the Lord sending Samuel to go and to anoint King David. The Lord sees not as man sees, but rather looks at the heart. And it's interesting in, in James chapter 2, verse 1, my brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, or the ESV reads, in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. I believe the ESV translation, transliteration of that phrase is actually more accurate, most accurate. And that little section, in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, that little section I think connects this whole, I think it's the key to this passage. And because it's the key to this passage, we're going to come back at the end to see how that little section in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, how it all hangs together right there. And so after this command to not hold our faith with partiality or favoritism, James then illustrates this command with a specific scenario in verses two or three. Listen again to the scenario. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes, and you say, sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Two people enter, one wearing gold rings and shiny clothing pointing to money and rank. The guy is clearly somebody. And the other, the other, his, his dress uh, is indicating that he is poor. And poor there is not just, I've got a little bit of money left in my savings account. I'm just trying to get some extra money on the side. No, this is a, a person who is destitute. He's filthy. And the reception for both couldn't be more different. The rich, the wealthy gets paid attention to. Ah, sit up here. Sit up here in this place of prominence. Let us ensure that we tend to who you are and what you need while the poor man is left to stand or to sit even below the feet of others.
essentially, one, come up here and take the seat of honor. The other, get out of the way. These two are assessed strictly by their appearance and they're treated accordingly. And so let's consider the five reasons for the main point that James makes in this passage. The main point that partiality has no place among followers of Jesus. Five reasons James gives us to support this. Number one, because partiality reveals evil in our hearts. Partiality reveals evil in our hearts. And we see this in verse four, right after the scenario that James gives to just sort of give them a visual of how gross and disgusting their hypocrisy and their favoritism is. This is what he says in verse four. So if, look, look back at verse two, for if a man comes into your assembly and then the scenario plays out, verse four, then have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives. What this bias reveals is not merely a character flaw for those that were present on that day when the two walked into the same service. No, what it reveals is evil within their hearts. Christians are those who have received a new heart and that heart isn't alive to evil, but it's alive to righteousness. And partiality and favoritism amounts then to self-appoint, a self-appointment where we view ourselves as judges over others and we're trusting in our judgments. If there's anything this life should have taught us, it's that our judgments are not always to be trusted. Our hearts are wicked. We are easily deceived. Playing favorites to those with wealth or status, race, influence, education, or life stage, it's evil. And we may not call it that, but James is clear to call it that. Why? Because God sees it as evil. God is not impressed with wardrobes. He's not impressed with resumes or bank accounts or followers and likes. He's not impressed with power and career because God looks upon the heart And James says, when we do not and we judge on face value, there's sort of a double fault that's happening here. One is it's putting man to where God rightly belongs. If we were to read Psalm chapter nine and all throughout the scriptures, we find that God is the one who will judge the world in righteousness. But the second reason that this is wrong is because we trust our own judgments. And so just play it out. Play this scenario out to its logical end. Why in the world on this day had these two people shown up in your service? Why in the world would you give preference to one and not the other? Well, what happens when the day comes and I need help? What happens when the day comes and I need money? Ah, my poor friend can't help me, but my wealthy friend can help. What happens when the day comes and I need help? How can I be helped by a nobody? But I need someone with power and influence because they are useful. And that's why it's evil. It's seeing people as a means for doing something for me 
And so this morning, I pray that you would just allow the Holy Spirit to shine his light of, of soul-searching truth into the dark recesses and the corners and the ugly attitudes of our hearts. Can you see the evil in, our, in your heart this morning? And James says one of the ways you clearly see it is the man-made preferences that we erect and how we choose some and are attracted to some and avoid and repel others. And if you don't see that in your heart, then ask God for help. Ask others around you to help you identify your blind spots. And if you do see it this morning, then friend, walk in, incur- uh, walk in repentance. Turn from your sinful ways and walk in repentance. Remember James 4.17, the man who knows the good he ought to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. The gospel frees us. What Jesus has done frees us from having an evil heart because what we receive is a spirit-wrought heart, a heart in which the Holy Spirit is living in us and through us. And so reason number one, why partiality has no place among followers of Jesus is because it reveals evil in our hearts. Reason number two, partiality contradicts the heart of God. Partiality contradicts the heart of God. We see this in verses five and the first half of verse six. Listen again. Listen, my beloved brethren. Do not, uh, did, God, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. It's as if James didn't want the original hearer to, to merely be convinced that the reason this is a problem is because their hearts are evil. James then takes it up a notch actually multiple notches, and says the reason that this is not justifiable among the people of God is because this partial attitude, this attitude of favoritism, it contrasts with the attitude of God. God doesn't have this attitude. Remember the scene, the poor man enters into the service and people size him up. And James says, whatever category you just put him in, you need to remember that God chooses the people that are in that category. God chooses those whom you disregarded. God chooses and you reject. And the word there in verse five, listen, my beloved brethren, did God not choose the poor of this world? That word there, it's the same word that we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. It's the language of God's gracious and sovereign choosing of people who are undeserving. God has set his saving love on people who were not worthy of it. And James is saying is the same God who chose you not based on your merit or your resume or your appearance. The God who chose you based on his character and his love, you are contradicting his heart whenever you then refuse to receive another. 
Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 and 8 makes this clear. For the Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more than in number than any of the peoples. No, in fact, you were the fewest of all peoples. But the Lord... But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Ezekiel chapter 16. Again, just helping us see this. Verses four through six. But as for your birth... On the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water for cleansing. You were not rubbed with salt or even wrapped in cloths. No eye looked with pity on you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, for you were abhorred on the day you were born. And when I passed by you and saw you squirming in your blood, I said to you while you were in your blood, live, live. Yes, I said to you while you were in your blood, live. The heart that sizes someone up and then says, ah, they're not worth the effort. They're not worth the consideration. They're not worth the pursuit. Is a, that is an attitude that is contradicting the character of God. And these people, these scattered Christians, they knew this. This was their story. This was their testimony. The poor here, it's poor in the eyes of the world. It's, It's those who lack what the world thinks is important. And what James doesn't mean is that God chooses every single poor person regardless of their heart and action. It doesn't mean that every poor person is going to inherit the kingdom. That's the case we would just, instead of having missions strategy, we would have, let's make everyone poor strategy. If God would just graciously and automatically redeem those. No, that's not what he's saying. But what he is saying is that wealth and status and power and clout, it often creates a strong illusion of self-sufficiency and self-security without God. And if you just read through the scriptures, what you will find is not that it's a sin to be wealthy. No, there were wealthy people all throughout the scriptures whom the Lord has used to accomplish his purposes, to further his kingdom. But there is a clear, clear majority of the kind of people that the Lord is attracted to, that the Lord looks favorably upon. And it's those who have little. Because on the whole, those who have little are well aware of their needs. And when God mercifully redeems those who didn't have anything, what's clear is that he receives the glory. And perhaps, perhaps one of the biggest hurdles that you have to even following this Jesus that we're considering is that you don't see yourself in this way. You don't see yourself as one who, who was discarded. You don't see yourself as one who, who didn't have much in terms of your resume and your Uh, your abilities and your skills and your intellect. Perhaps you don't see your need this morning. 
I can remember thinking that when I heard people talk about Christianity being a crutch, I can remember there was a time in my life where I thought, that is so true. Because Christianity seems to be one story after another of someone who hits rock bottom and they sort of then just lean on, Christ, they lean on this crutch of Christianity. And the problem is that not everybody would hit rock bottom. And so this is really just a religion for those that were uh, sort of grasping for the last straw. It's a crutch for people who can't help themselves anymore. And I, that narrative used to have a ring of truth for me. And then I became a Christian. And I realized that it was the other way around. I realized that everyone was leaning on a crutch. Whether it was the crutch of fitness or the crutch of image or the crutch of relationship or the crutch of money or career or the crutch of power or the crutch of pleasure. And in fact, becoming a Christian is realizing that the crutches of this world can never address the fundamental dilemma of every human soul. And it can never satisfy the craving of every human heart. Only God can feel that can fill that. And so good news today, friends. There is a God who has come to rescue rebellious sinners from the crutches of this world that they're leaning on. And he does that first by showing us our brokenness, showing us our need that we all sin. And then by showing us how we cannot address that dilemma and how he alone does address that dilemma. How in the world can we ever stand justified, stand, stand with before God in right standing? Well, we do that with perfect holiness, which means no sins. And that's not on any of our resumes. But praise be to God, it is on the resume of Jesus the Christ. And that's what he came to do, to earn perfect holiness. To get to the end of his life and to live a death that was reserved for sinners who were rebellious against the good commands of God. And we find Jesus not only earning the righteousness that we are required to have, but also exhausting the wrath that we are deserving to endure. You say, well, Justin, that sounds great, but why in the world should I believe that? Can I tell you why? Because on the third day, this Jesus rose from the dead. If you're gonna put the chips of your life somewhere, put them, put them on the one who's not still in the grave and who promises eternal hope, who, who promises forgiveness of sins and enjoyment of him forever. If you are not a Christian this morning, friend, I would plead with you, turn from your sin. Stop leaning on other crutches that do not address your fundamental problem. And turn, turn to Jesus in faith and find that what maybe seems like a crutch to you is actually the comfort and the security of knowing that you are being held by God himself. And if he holds you, he will never let you go. How pathetic are we when we deem one another inferior? Because God says that those who were poor, verse five, 
He chose to be rich in faith. The world sees only their poverty and God sees their exalted state. If God has chosen, if God has chosen them, how can we esteem them less? I mean, this, this passage recalibrates our hearts and our eyes to the values of heaven. One commentator, Douglas Moo, said, God delights especially to shower his grace to those that the world has discarded and deemed unimportant. Alec Motier says, the Lord has clear notice of those who are towards the bottom of the world's list. Good news for you this morning. If you have not found a circle of friends in which you feel like you belong, you feel like every room that you walk into, you are being sized up and then discarded. God has a place for you because he has affection for you. Friend, turn from your sin and trust in this loving, merciful, gracious God. And for those of us that are followers of Jesus, this ought to reflect, our, our attitude and interactions with others ought to be reflective of this heartbeat of God. Are you aware of the sinfulness of your attitudes? Are you guilty of this kind of attitude? The gospel is the only way that we can avoid this double-mindedness because in Christ, we have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit beats the heartbeat of God. He gives us what we lack. And that leads us to reason number three. Reason number three. Partiality tells the world that their judgments are correct. Partiality tells the world that their judgments are correct. We see this at the rest of verse six and then verse seven. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? James wants to, to make clear that partiality is revealing worldly values. And in order to make this clear, James just reminds these believers who are receiving this letter that the world is acting out on values and beliefs and convictions that they have. And James won't let us miss the irony that, that, that takes place here. In fact, if it weren't so sad, we would have to laugh at the irony. The Christians who are sizing people up and then judging and discarding and welcoming and receiving other people based on their appearances. They were being abused by the rich and by the prominent in society. And so the ones they were trying to please were the ones who were, because of their faith, they were shunning them. They were persecuting them. They were being dragged into court and injustice was being practiced against them. And do you know what the rich were saying by that practice? The rich were saying, you are less valuable than we are. We're exalted over you and you are lowly and despised. And by the wealthy and the rich who were doing those actions, by their actions, they were blaspheming the name of Christ. And then when they showed up to service with these Christians, the Christians were showing favoritism to them. The Christians were agreeing with the assessment of the rich that they are the ones that, are, that were to be exalted and other people didn't match up to them. 
They would slander the savior that these Christians love. And they would mock these Christians for their devotion to him. And when we treat others in a worldly way where we favor the advantage at the expense of the disadvantage, we align ourselves with those who oppose God. And that's what James is making clear. It's disgusting. It's evil. It contradicts the gracious mercy and loving kindness of God. And the gospel frees us from being inconsistent with a divided heart of loyalties. Good news, Christians. The people who persecute you, you don't have to appease them. The people who would, who would put you in a category of saying that you are lowly, you don't have to spend your life trying to earn favor and acceptance in their sight. You have been given that from God Almighty. You can stand before your persecutors, secure in who you are in Christ. Leads us to reason number four. Partiality violates the royal law of love. Partiality violates the royal law of love. We see this in verses eight through 11. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who did not, or for he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. James is saying that genuine faith is visible. Genuine faith is visible. We said this last week. Authentic Christians are not like Waldo. You shouldn't have to strain for hours trying to find where they are among the crowd. Their good works will make them visible. And perhaps at the beginning, when you heard the title of the sermon, Why God Hates Partiality, perhaps you thought, I mean, yes, partiality is bad. But partiality and favoritism, that's not up there in like with the biggies, right? The biggie sins. And James is saying, no, 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 no. This violates something foundational, James says, you are violating the word of God, the royal law. Another another way to say the royal law is to say the law that belongs to the king. You violate the king's law. You violate the law of God as it finds its fulfillment in Jesus, the king. You see, all that God's word teaches and all that it commands It's given to those who belong to Christ. James chapter one, verse 25 is the same thing. This idea of the law of liberty. You see, at the heart of God's instruction, he points us to Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. About loving the Lord your God. And that superior love to everything else. 
In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus quotes Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. When he's speaking of, of what is the summation of all of the law. And then he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6. And he says, and the second law is just like it. You love your neighbor as yourself. These two loves must govern everything that a follower of Jesus does. Love for God and love for neighbor. Any partiality, any superficial judgment is in direct violation to this core commandment that Jesus gives to his followers. The opposite of doing the royal law is showing favoritism. It's being partial. The essence of the royal law is that wherever there's an, a need, there's an obligation to extend that sort of love that we would like to be extended on us. The essence of this of partiality then is to select the recipients of our care on some other ground other than what they need. This isn't just a bad habit. Some people would say, oh, wait a minute, James, you're being a little bit extreme. I understand that this is a part of the law. But do you remember what you told us in verse 27 of chapter 1? Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. And perhaps someone is just saying, it's just one sin. I'm visiting widows and orphans. There are so many other things that I'm doing, James. You're blowing, you're blowing this sin a little bit out of proportion. And James says, no, no, no. It's not that I don't understand how well you keep all of the law and break one part of it. You don't understand the nature of the law. How in the world do we go from showing partiality to verse 11, adultery and murder? That's quite the jump there, James. And what James is trying to show is that God's law isn't some random collection of rules and laws. It's not just a little bit of, of this rule and a little bit of this law and would sort of put it all together. No, God's law is one coherent, consistent expression of who God is. It all holds together because it all takes root and finds value and shape in who God is. His heart, his standards, his wisdom, his values, his perfection, they are all, it's all seen in his law. Alec Motier gives a helpful illustration. And he says, the law of God is not merely like a heap of stones in which we can run and and take one of the laws away and say, I'm not going to do this law, but you still have a heap of stones. He says, rather, it's like a sheet of glass. And breaking one of the laws so fractures all of it. And that's what James is saying. The whole law of God is represented in each command because all of the character of God is represented in each command. Just like the whole moon is there, even though we can only see certain parts of it, everything about the law is necessary because it's expressing something about the lawgiver. And so to say that there's one command that I really don't have to follow, or there's one com command that doesn't apply to me, is to say that there's something about God's nature that doesn't apply to me. And James wants his 
readers, and he wants us by extension to see what is, what is at stake. It's a rejection of God's authority. It's a failure of God's love. It's a breaking of God's law. It's a violation of God's will. And therefore, it's a denial of our allegiance to Christ. James pulls no punches when it comes to our sin. And so my non-Christian friend, again, I just, I want to make clear, you need the work of Jesus because he alone keeps the glass unbroken from beginning to end. You and I, we may try to piecemeal this thing together, but every time we break the law, any of God's law, we are guilty of breaking it all. And so I wonder this morning, will you receive the invitation of mercy to receive from Christ what you can never do? And to trust in Christ and that he has endured what you were deserving of because of the fractured glass of God's law that your life gives testimony to. None of us are perfect. And that's the standard. And this will cost you everything to follow him. It will require you to wake up every day and die to wanting to do life the way you want to do it and submitting to him so that you can live life the way that he requires. Non-Christian friend, turn from your sin. Trust in Jesus. And my Christian brothers and sisters, do you see how the gospel is the only way that we can ever get over the need to hold back on loving others? Because it's only having received the love of God in and through Christ that we are then free to, to give and not feel like there's a deficit. You and I will never be able to love other people the way that we love ourselves if that means that ourselves will not be loved. And the gospel addresses that. The gospel says you are more loved than you can ever imagine. And now in light of that, you're free to go and love other people even when it costs you. Lastly, reason number five. Partiality reveals a lack of mercy in our hearts. And without mercy we will be judged. Partiality reveals a lack of mercy in our hearts and without mercy, we will be judged. Look at verses 12 and 13. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty for judgment will be merciless to those who, who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy is to show compassion and kindness to those not like us, whether they deserve it or not. The logic flows this way. If we're not merciful to those around us, it demonstrates that we are not filled with the mercy of God. And without mercy, all that's left is judgment. I mean, those are your two paths. You are either going to go through this life on a path marked by mercy from God or a path marked by judgment before God. And so are you telling me, Justin, then that I need to be merciful in order to be saved? No, James isn't telling you that. James is saying one of the real ways that you can determine whether or not you have received mercy is whether or not you give mercy. And some say, well, Justin, you just don't understand. You don't know my spouse or my parents or my child or my boss. And this is what I do understand. 
I do understand that if you and I have to explain away our lack of mercy, it is evidence that we're not filled with it. You say, well, I'm merciful to my friends. Come on, come on. He's talking about being a merciful person, not having marks of mercy here and there as you choose and as you please. We're called to obey Jesus, but we obey in a different way than ever before. We obey knowing that the penalty of sin has been paid, that the power of sin over us has been broken. We obey because we've been changed and been given new affections, new desires, and new delights. And we can obey because the spirit of God is within us. He creates the desire to do it, and he also creates and he enables the doing of it. I mean, this is the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. And this whole section ends on this celebratory note because because James has just given us a perfect description of the cross of Jesus Christ where sin is fully paid for, where divine wrath has been fully satisfied because there is a mercy that's been provided through a sufficient payment to satisfy cosmic justice. Mercy will triumph over judgment. His mercy is more than our sin if we would humble our knee and run to him. I pray that this would not only inform how we think of extending love and mercy and care to others. I pray that this is what would mark our church. I pray this would be a discernible identification of Covenant Life Church that we would not fall into the pattern of showing favoritism. Not because we know this is what we're commanded to do, but because we are so enamored by the fact that God did not show favoritism in choosing us. If God chose them, how and who am I to avoid and to reject and to despise and to ignore them? And I said we would kind of culminate this sermon right where it began. This all hangs together because of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Church, you and I would be served well to remember the glory of the Lord that has been shown to us in the face of Jesus Christ. What is the glory of the Lord? Church, this is why this all makes sense. This is why it all holds together. Because the glory of the Lord is that Christ was rich and he became poor. That he had heaven, but he came to earth. That he was over time, but he chose to enter into time. That he was the creator who, came, who became part of creation. That he transcends race and he became Middle Eastern. That he was ageless and eternal, and yet he was born as a baby. What did he do? Spiritually, we were helpless, and he died for us. When we were spiritually poor, he gave us his riches. When we were spiritually hungry, he fed us. When we were spiritually naked, he clothed us. When we were spiritually lost, he found us. When we were spiritual strangers, he came after us. And when we were spiritually dead, he brought us back to life. When we were spiritually rebellious, against him. He came to us. Why does all of this matter? It all matters 
And it makes every difference in the world when it comes to partiality. There is no boundary that Christ did not cross in order to redeem us. He reproduces this heart in you and I and his love then penetrates our hearts. And unless we first see that he has crossed everything to reach us, we will never cross any boundaries to reach other people. What compels us to move towards others in mercy and compassion It's that we are those who didn't earn it and didn't deserve it. It's because we savor and see the reality of who Christ is and what he's done in order to get the gospel to us, in order to hold us and to draw us. The gospel tells us over and over again that God is not partial. He proved it in Jesus. Nothing kept him from our sin, not our Nothing kept him from us, not our sin, not rebellion, not our bias against him. And in his great mercy, when we didn't deserve it, he came to us. Church, is your life characterized by this kind of impartiality towards those that are not like you? Are you equally gracious and kind and thoughtful towards others that are different from you? Think about the testimony of the power of the gospel when a church lives this out, a people that are not segregated by human barriers, that kind of community preaches. It preaches and the world takes notice. Long, I long for people to walk in here from this community and say, what in the world is happening here? Because I see all races and all ages and socioeconomic statuses and educated and uneducated. And, just, and what's even the dress code in here? I can't even tell. There's not any artificial boundaries. And they're not just talking about being family. They are family. And church, that's what happens when mercy triumphs over judgment. And that's what's at stake concerning partiality. It's the glory of Jesus the Christ and the purity of his gospel. And that's why partiality has no place among followers of Jesus. And James warns us, oh, may we never deny, even so subtly, the beauty of the gospel through the deadly sin of partiality. Let's pray. God, as your word has gone forth, we ask you to do what you promised in Isaiah 55. Accomplish your purposes. And begin with me. Begin with my all too often prejudiced, biased, easily swayed to show favoritism heart. Enamor me more and more with the glories of your grace. And I pray that that wouldn't end with me. Begin, yes, but not end. May you so reorient the priorities of our lives. And so would you use the next moment of silence to get us there and to accomplish those purposes, we pray.